Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries Podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. So welcome to today's episode of Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries. This is a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal services. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO at Vandenack Weaver Trulson. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession, and exit planning. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Joining me today are Jerry Hash and Stephen Breikstead. This is our second of two episodes discussing preferred partnership freezes. So if you missed the first episode, you might want to go back and listen to that before listening to this episode and two, because today's episode is basically a continuation of that conversation. In the first episode, we went through what a preferred partnership freeze is, a freeze partnership is, and what some of the advantages of that. And Jerry and Steve are going to some examples and alternatives, explaining in more detail on how that works. So thanks for joining me again today, Jerry and Steve. All right. Oh, by the way, I have to put a plug in. Steve and I did this paper on preferred partnership freezes last year for the Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Institute. And if you, if you want these kind of subjects that integrate income tax planning with estate planning, I highly recommend you consider attending next year's Notre Dame Tax and Estate Planning Institute, which is scheduled in South Bend, Indiana for September 20th to 22nd, 2003. 
And I have a preference for Notre Dame because I'm the director of it. And, and as I understand it, you have a great slate of presentations coming together as well. We we try to we try to give topics that you don't see at other CLE programs, like integrating liabilities into your, all your planning. Okay. All right. So let's go back to our simple example. And here we have a, a real estate partnership, okay, with an asset worth 54 million, a basis of four, debt of 44. So the equity or the capital account is $10 million. And we want what we want to do in a preferred partnership is have all of those tax attributes that you see on the screen in the preferred interest but you know that 10% of the capital must be allocated to the common interest. So what we do not do is take 10% of that real estate and recapitalize it as a common interest and 90% of all of those tax attributes as a preferred interest. Instead, this is what we do, okay? Senior happens to have $10 million of other assets with a $2 million basis without any liabilities. Now, all that the preferred partnership requires in order for you to have a preferred partnership freeze and allocate everything to the any appreciation and excess income to the common interest is the common interest must have 10% of the total capital. So what senior does is has another asset such as stock in a company. And all we care about is that other asset happens to have $10 million of basis, um, 10 million of value. So in this situation, senior contributes this other asset to the partnership for a common interest. And the real estate is the preferred interest. Now notice what I did here, very interesting. The capital, the common capital is not the minimum 10%. The common capital represents 50% of the total capital. Now, alternatively, we junior or an existing irrevocable trust could make the capital contribution for the common interest. So what happens now is under the partnership income tax rules, under the partnership liability allocation rules and the partnership built-in gain rules, all those obscure technical partnership tax provisions, all of the income tax attributes, inherent net real estate, stay with the preferred interest because everything, all the value and all the liabilities and basis were allocated to the preferred interest. And the partnership income tax rules require that. So now- They're allocated to the preferred interest because preferred interest um, was received for a contribution of this appreciated encumbered asset. So partnership tax rules, you don't have to be a partnership expert to do this, but just to understand the concept, require you to allocate 
pre-contribution gain to the contributing partner, in this case, the preferred interest holder. And otherwise, you could just take appreciated property, put it in a partnership, and stick somebody else with your built-in gain. That would be too good to be true. So even though the preferred interest is 50%, if that real estate is sold for $54 million subject to the liability, all $50 million of the realized gain, which is pre-contribution gain, must be allocated and reported by the preferred partner. So, but we're never, remember, we're not going to sell it. He's going to die with the preferred interest. So now, let's see what happens. Suppose a number of years go by, the preferred, the, the preferred return is based on seniors' $9 million capital account, okay? The property appreciates in value from 54 to $64 million. The entire appreciation in value is allocated to the common interest. So at seniors' debt, some years later, all the preferred interest, all the appreciation is in the common, which is now in an irrevocable grant or trust in some estate planning transaction, so at that, the preferred interest is included in seniors' gross estate, the entire negative capital account. Now, what is the negative capital account? It is the amount of liabilities in excess of basis. So even though the, the capital account shows up at a market value of $9 million for income tax purposes, the capital account is $44 million of liabilities in excess of $4 million basis, so for income tax purposes, the preferred has a $40 million negative capital account for tax purposes, but for book purposes, it's worth $9 million, okay? Okay, now, so basically, the common, by the way, the problem is the common interest doesn't get any step up in basis at death for that $10 million of appreciation. So we shifted $10 million of value to the common interest with carryover basis. And at slide 33... You, know, you might want to just mention, uh, because there is some literature out there that suggests that the common does get a step up in basis on these, these kinds of scenarios. You might want to mention, um, the, let's call it the majority view on that. You mean the minority view that's flawed? Flawed minority view is that even the common gets a step up in basis uh, and that uh, we don't think that that's accurate. Um, it's been pretty much repudiated by most commentators, but there are some learned works out there that suggest otherwise. So I do have a, a question on that, given I'm very aware of the dispute and was at a meeting last week has started sitting in the middle of a dispute on that issue. And like, oh, I think I want to just crawl into the table. But in talking to clients, do you think we at least have to mention that alternative view? It's Which flawed. It's absolutely flawed. You have no obligation. Okay, that, and that's just what I wanted to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, it's not a gray area, in my, not in my opinion, and not in the opinion of most people. Okay. to be but it's really not and it's on the treasury's priority guidance plan they're going to basically come out one of these years on it well, right. and you know i listened 
to, so I first ran across Jerry at the NYU Tax Institute in New York, and then you both presented in the fall. And I think one of the things that I've heard the IRS saying is they're going to read what we put out there and use that in terms of their rulings and what they're looking at. And that certainly seems to be the case. So I would certainly exercise out there. Okay. They said they're, they read what the commentators write. So I was recently at an ACTEC meeting. So I said, if you oppose this view, please don't write about your opposition to the view and put us, put those of us who do want to take a certain strategy. And it, it wasn't actually the grant or trust issue and the basis step of it was a different issue. But that is something that they do pay attention to what we say and do in terms of the guidance these days. I would never recommend that. A client uh, to my client something I know is flawed, and, and I think that's very appropriate statement. Listen, I, I've I've run across um, you know scenarios where, um, let's say one of the people who's behind that alternative view would say, "Why do you need to do a freeze partnership? Everything's going to get to step up regardless. Just sell it to the trust and buy a whole bunch of life insurance." Somehow those two things are not connected, but they're not really connected. And um, it's, you know, it's a problem when somebody goes out there and, and promotes a flawed theory. Yeah. All right. So now, Steve, one of Steve's favorite topics, the leaky freeze. If you have a partnership where 90% of the capital is in the preferred and 10% of the capital is in the common, Financially, if there, if the assets don't perform as well, the risk is on the preferred because the, there's not much coverage with only 10% of the capital being the common. So if you go to a qualified appraiser and a business appraiser with a 90-10 partnership capital account allocation, and the preferred return will be in the 9 to 12% range. Using the seven, the nineteen eighty three market rate approach, but what we did here is basically have half of the capital in the common. So if there's an underperformance overall on that twenty million of capital, the twenty million still has to be used to first make the priority allocation to the preferred. So a way of reducing the leaky freeze is to reduce the preferred rate of return by having as large an allocation to the common as possible. The only problem is the estate the, the estate planning community says, oh, all I need is 90-10. So let's have a 90-10 allocation. So if you do a 90-10 allocation, you're going to have a leaky freeze. But if you do an allocation where 40 to 50% of the capital is in the cut provides coverage by the common, the preferred rate of return or the preferred guaranteed payment will be significantly lower, but they'll still be greater than the AFI or the 7520 rate. Steve, you have any more comments on that? Um, I mean, not really. Okay. All right. So essentially, uh, we we like to uh, reduce the leaky freeze by now. Of course, financially, it all depends on the assets that the individual has. 
sometimes, you know, remember most real estate owners basically don't have anything but real estate because why should they invest in marketable securities that's risky when they know the real estate? So financially, it may not be practical. You're not suggesting real estate isn't risky. Yeah. All right. It's the type of risk that you're comfortable with. Okay. All right. So now. But sometimes, just just embellish on that. Sometimes the uh, senior wants has a lifestyle that requires the cash flow. Um, and uh, sometimes they want freeze to be bringing back more. They're not always looking to reduce what comes back to them for, for the preferred interest that they've held. Um, so you, you have to really know the client. I would say that our wealthy clients and our middle wealthy clients often like getting cash flow back. Um, and, and the higher, the better. And if they're ending it all, great. But the, the really wealthy people typically don't want the cash flow back. They have more than they know what to do with. So that's where this planning really, you know, gets interesting. Right. So let us review all of the factors that enter into your estate plan. We got our discounts. We got the preferred rate, the financial leverage, which is beating the hurdle rate. And what's interesting is if you look at all three factors, valuation discounts, that's a one-time thing. The financial leverage is just beating the hurdle rate. But in the long run, the most effective wealth depletion technique is the burn caused by the grantor having to pay the income taxes on the grantor trust income. Because the more value and income is allocated to the common interest, the more taxable income. And if you basically look at a 10, 15, or 20-year time horizon, the most effective estate planning depletion technique is actually the grantor paying the income taxes on the grantor trust income. But you can only... That also ameliorates the sleeky freeze notion. If you're, if you're paying tax on, on all this other income that you're not getting, that tax is going to offset the extra income you're getting back. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. At Foster Group, we know there are more important things than money. There's the joy of providing a lovely home for your family, the excitement of an early retirement, the relief knowing that an unexpected emergency won't ruin your finances. At Foster Group, we're invested in the things that make life, life, and how to get there. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. Now, here's the key, and this is what I tell my students. You learn this stuff, you, le you, you learn all the, you know, you, you learn the acronyms, grits, grats, gruts, cuperts, you name it. And you think you really understand it. So what I tell my students, when you go to visit your grandmother in Boca Raton, Florida, and if you can explain it to your nana or your grandmother and she understands it, then you have developed the communication skills 
that are necessary for the practice of law. Because way too many estate planning lawyers and tax lawyers speak tax speak and nobody understands them. So the key is how can we communicate how all these factors, the financial leverage, the burn, and the discounts all play a role in increasing the wealth depletion and the income tax advantages. So what I've done here is, this is from my class materials, um, and to keep it simple, no liabilities, because as soon as you get liabilities, it just confuses the facts. So let's suppose senior has $10 million of unencumbered investment assets, contributes it to a partnership for a preferred capital account of $6 million and a common capital account of $4 million. And the preferred interest provides for what we call a 6% priority return, which means 6% times the $6 million capital account or the first $360,000 of partnership income must be allocated to the preferred and only income in excess of that priority allocation we allocated to the common. Now, the common interest has a $4 million capital account, but we can discount it. And be, let's suppose we take a conservative 25% valuation discount. I also like discounts where the, the numbers can be even. So 25% valuation discount means that common interest with a $4 million capital account can be sold or disposed of at $3 million. So what Senior will then do is sell the common interest to a grantor trust for a $3 million promissory note, taking back the trust promissory note at the long-term AFR. And let's assume that the long-term AFR is 2%. I didn't update this example. So what that means is at a $3 million installment sale, Senior is going to get $60,000 of annual interest with all note principal due in 20 years. Now, let's assume for simplicity purposes, Senior's income tax rate is 40%. And let's assume that partnership income increases every year by a small amount, okay? So what this means is, what is senior going to receive every year? Well, he's going to get a $360,000 allocation and distribution from the preferred return and $60,000 from the promissory note interest. So for the Wait. The way the way we do this um, by by having um, more um, of of the value of the equity allocated to the common, you're reducing the, the 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 size of the priority return as well because there's more coverage. Yeah, that's why I have a six percent priority return. Right. Okay. So basically, senior is frozen at the. 360 allocation of profits and the 60,000 of interest income each year. So all senior is going to get for the next 20 years is $420,000. And remember, we just sold that common interest to the grantor trust for a $3 million note. 
So senior is going to have to pay the income taxes on all of the partnership's income. So let us see what happens. So we have this nice little chart. The first year, partnership income is 500. The preferred allocation is 360. So what that means is all partnership income in excess of the preferred return, 140, is allocated to the common. Senior is receiving 420. But senior has to pay the income taxes on all $500,000 because in this situation, senior sold the common interest to a grantor trust. So there was no sale for income tax purposes. So no interest income is reported and no interest expense deduction is reported. So wait a minute. Look at this. Senior has to pay $200,000 of income taxes. So what does the grantor trust get? Well, the grantor trust basically has 140 common allocation, pays 60,000 of note interest. So the grantor trust at the end of the first year increases by $80,000. And all that senior nets in this situation is 220. Remember, senior got 420, but had to pay 40% of income taxes on 500000 or $200,000. So, you know, senior says, fine, not bad. So I net $220,000 and my trust increases. Even if the assets in the trust don't increase in value, the, the greater trust has $80,000 more. Why isn't it a gift to pay the taxes for the senior to pay the taxes on the trust income? Because under the Internal Revenue Code, the statute says that you have an obligation to pay the income taxes on the greater trust income. And the 2006 revenue ruling said you can't make a gift when you're paying your own debt obligation. That was the reason that the 2006 ruling said you don't have to Hey, that's that. That's the advantage of the bird. It's not. A, it's not a gift. Period. Not a gift. Okay. Now, in year two, partnership income increases by a hundred thousand dollars. But guess what? All the income in excess of three hundred and sixty is allocated to the common. So in year two, the common gets allocated two hundred and forty. Senior still gets only 420, but now senior has to pay the income taxes on 600,000. Well, so basically that comes to a lot of money. So all of a sudden, after senior pays the income taxes on 600,000, guess what? Senior nets 180, and in the second year, the greater trust just on the income allocation gets another $180,000. And year three, look what happens. All senior gets is 420. The common allocation in year four, look at year four, is 
360 to the preferred, 440 to the common. So I have now shifted another 380 of value to the preferred. Seniors paying the income taxes of 40% on 800,000, that's 320,000. Senior nets $100,000. Okay, so senior says, yeah, I really don't need the money. Now look at year six. Oh my God. The partnership is making a million dollars. The preferred allocation is still 360. Senior only gets 60 on the note, but senior has to pay the income taxes on all a million or $400,000. And all that senior is getting is 420. So senior only nets 20,000. And all of a sudden the grantor trust in year six increases by another 580. So senior says, all right, not bad. Uh-oh, look what happens in year seven. Income goes to 1.1 million. Senior's got a senior still only getting the same 420. Guess what? Gulp, gulp, gulp. Senior has to pay the income taxes on 1.1 million, which is 440,000. Senior only is getting 420. So senior has to come out of that deficit on senior's other assets. The senior says, eh, what happens in year nine if things keep increasing in value? And I only went out nine years. But what, what, what's going to happen over the next 20 years? The burn is going to be significant. Now, so the next question to deal with is, wait a minute, senior is not happy about having to dip into senior's other assets to pay the shortfall because of having to pay the income taxes on all of the partnership income. Well, one thing that the common, the trust that purchased the common interest can do is start to prepay the $3 million on the note. But that's only a Band-Aid for the next few years. So in this situation, what we're saying is, when you recommend these transactions, you must carry out your financial projections to at least to the senior in their 90s. Because what's gonna happen is, they're not going to be happy with the burn. You can see every year that let's suppose that in year 20, partnership income is $2 million and senior has to pay $800,000 of income taxes. Senior is not going to be happy about that. So one of the things from a financial point of view that you have to structure is how to take into account the burn. And we're not going to get into that. There's things like tax reimbursement clauses or determining grant or trust status, uh, which is far beyond this. But what we're saying to you. Yeah, I'd like to make a couple of comments when you're done. Okay, go ahead. So, so most um, run of the mill planners, let's say, will dismiss this, this whole thing, because they're just too complicated. They don't understand. 
they'll they'll simply do an installment sale. I've seen this so many times where uh, they'll just do an installment sale of this encumbered real estate, appreciated with you know with uh, built-in gain all over the place, and put it into a grantor trust for for the installment note, and uh, and turn a turn a blind eye all of the income tax considerations and the loss of basis step. I mean, that's that's too far out in the future for most people to really get their head around. So that's, um, you know, that's sometimes what we're up against. You have to train them, teach them to understand the income tax consequences of the normal installment sale, which works initially, but over time is a disaster. Um, so that that's, that's one point. The other point I want to make, and just as a footnote, is these transactions are not, you don't have to just, you're not one and done. You don't just do them and then walk away and never look at them again. I think you have to monitor them and you have to look at ways over time, and the jury city's not going to get into that, fine, of of modifying the structure when either the cat the preferred return is too onerous. I had a client fifteen years couldn't afford to pay the preferred return. Then they finally admitted to me they were paying their preferred return out of savings. So just wasn't enough income in the partnership. So why don't you tell me that a lot earlier? And what I did with them is I recapitalized the partnership, which you can do on a tax-free basis, so that there was less preferred return or no preferred return. Turn it all into common at that point. It, it may be fine because the, the appreciation has happened. It just hasn't had the income to make the preferred return. So... There's a lot of things you can do over time, but don't just, you know, put it in the draw and, and walk away and assume that everything is going to be fine. Like all all techniques, you really need to revisit them and 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 you know, be prepared to modify them over time. Jerry just mentioned he's not going to get into tax reimbursement clauses. You know, I, I'm going to get into it a little bit. There, it's not something that you usually think of as a way around the burn, but it's. It's pretty standard in in partnerships to have a tax reimbursement clause. So we're you know we're doing one right now and we're putting in a tax reimbursement clause. Think about it. And you know when a, a typical tax reimbursement clause in a partnership is one that says that you're going to make a distribution to the partners an amount equal to the tax that they would otherwise have to pay, um, and they may not get enough cash flow on the operating income of the partnership. So with a tax reimbursement clause, they can get that extra distribution to cover their taxes. It's a way of, you know, it's a standard technique used in partnerships, but not so much in this context. And it's it's a way of lessening the the you know the, the negative impact of the burn if that's what you want to do. Yeah. All right. So what Steve is telling you is we can't do our transactions and in, in isolation. We have to take into account what's going to happen in the future, especially with grantor trust status, and it compounds over a long period of time. And it could be, you know, what can happen is the burn caused by grantor trust status could totally eliminate all of the assets the senior family member has. So maybe one solution is to have the grantor trust be a trust for the benefit of my spouse and my descendants. So if, you know, so if the burn is too great, 
and your spouse is a beneficiary of the Grantor Trust, distributions can be made to the Grantor Trust. One problem is what happens if your spouse predeceases you? You could have a problem. So you must have to integrate the future financial implications of any estate planning transaction that you're doing, even an outright gift to a grantor trust, you have to show them the impact of the burn. So I have a question on that. So, I, and I feel really strongly, I appreciate you making that point because I do some presenting on ethical issues related to estate planning. And it's really important that clients understand what the burn is when a trust is irrevocable and they make a gift, but they can't really just take it back, those type of things. And I also think really running some of the scenarios is extremely important. And I'm one of those who um, can build spreadsheets in my sleep, but do you guys use your own spreadsheets or for somebody who might not be great at doing that, is there some software that helps them develop the preferred, the breezy partnership scenarios like this? Unfortunately, there is no commercial software that takes into account the burn. If you look at Number Cruncher, ZCalc, and some of the other commercial programs, none of them show the impact of the grantor paying the income taxes on the grantor trust income. So, but it's not that difficult to do, you know, or what you do is you get your children or your grandchildren to do the Excel spreadsheet for you. Okay. All right. Now, once we put our preferred partnership in place, the property is going to appreciate in value and there's going to be future refinancing. So let's go back to our previous example where we basically have a preferred partnership where the common interest was capitalized with 10 million and the preferred interest was capitalized with 10 million. Okay. So in the common basis, whatever it is, is kind of irrelevant. So in this, this is your typical preferred partnership that we structured and the common interest is now owned by a grantor trust. So what happens if the partnership property increases in value from 54 million to 64 million, a $10 million increase in value. So the 44 million mortgage is refinanced for 50 million, netting the partnership an extra $6 million of cash. Now, what is the partnership going to do with that extra $6 million of cash? Well, what we recommend, although it's not done most of the time, is that the partnership distribute the additional $6 million of cash to the preferred interest as a partial redemption of the preferred's $10 million capital account. Because remember, go back here. Remember, the preferred's capital account was $10 million, And we refinanced it from $44 million to $54 million because it went up. I, I mean, we, we financed it from 44 
In other words, we use the 60% loan to value ratio. So if the partnership distributes an addition, the additional six million of cash from the free financing, we've redeemed a portion of the preferred interest from 10 million to 4 million. So now the preferred interest holder has six million of cash, which they're probably going to do put into another real estate deal. But look what happens to the preferred priority allocation. It's no longer 6% times 10 million, but is now 6% times 4 million. So the preferred return goes from 600,000 to 240,000. And interestingly enough, if you, if you parcel through the obscure partnership liability income tax rules, who got the economic benefit of that six million financing? The preferred. So under the partnership liability allocation rules, the entire six million of increase in liabilities must be allocated to the preferred interest. So essentially, in that situation, the preferred interest now with 4 million of equity happens to have not 44 million of liabilities, but 50 million of liabilities. So in that situation, we have increased the preferred's negative capital account by another 6 million. And so we have basically had an income tax-free basis step up for the additional six million of negative capital account, let me make a comment about that. Uh, and I know Jerry Jerry likes to show these examples in the most simple terms. So oh, really? yeah. here's this. So here's the simple example. Under the partnership allocation rules, we now have a preferred capital account of four million. All that's exposed to the gross estate is forty percent by four million. And guess what? we still get a step up in basis at death to $54 million. Right. Uh, but Ed Senior also has the extra cash, $6 million of extra cash in their estate, which they may or may not know what to do with. Um, so this is something that uh, also comes up in the real world, in the practical world, where people are living with a freeze partnership. Uh, normally, they want to make these refinancing distributions to the trust. They're viewing this as profits and upside. They want to give it to the trust. Well, if they give it to the trust, that, first of all, if they give too much to the, too much refinancing, deferred interest could go down to zero, and that'll trigger all sorts of tax consequences. You don't want to do that. You usually like to give the preferred interest holder a little bit of commons so that they're not completely wiped out. Because all, where do the liabilities go when you make all those distributions? But also, once what I, what I have and what I'm dealing with now uh, you know, we've been doing these for a long time, is, is, is a number of freeze partnerships that have been very successful from a financial standpoint, where they've distributed refinancing proceeds to the trust, to the junior equity holders um, over a long period of time. And now they have huge negative capital accounts in the trust, which is exactly where you don't want it to be. That's the, the flaw with the installment sales is that it all ends up in the trust and there's no step up on that. So we're doing recapitalizations and restructurings of long-standing freeze partnerships 
to move the, the liabilities, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but move the liabilities out of the trust and back into the hands of the senior generation. That'll hold the preferred. Yeah. So essentially, I don't, I don't think we have much time left. This because, But the, the point is that in this situation, if we distributed all of the refinancing to the preferred, but the senior says, wait a minute, I now have $6 million of cash. Why don't I distribute the $6 million of refinancing to the common that is not included in my gross estate? So we just increase the commons negative capital account by six million dollars, or we reduce the commons capital account, and eventually the commons capital account can go negative with a lot of refinancing. So the next question is: I now have a common interest that's not included in my gross estate with a negative capital account. And, oops, sorry. And if you run into that scenario, you should pause. Yeah. Uh, we, it, the, the point is, to do this, this is all, you have to have an encyclopedic understanding of the partnership income tax rules. Not only special allocations, but uh, all of the partnership liability allocation rules. And... It, and basically, the only people who can really do this have to have a good understanding of partnership income tax rules. Now, who can help the estate planner with the partnership income tax rules? It's the accountants that have to do the partnership income tax returns every year. And there are so a good resource in this analysis, in this process. Pardon me? It's so important to include the accountants in this process. And they often get left out. They don't even know you did planning. When you're doing this type of planning, it's especially important to include them in the process. You may have to educate them a little bit about the technique, even some of the partnership tax rules, but they're the ones that are going to be carrying it out. And you really need to include them in, in the conversation. I think that's a really important point. Whenever I'm working on really any partnership agreement, I like to bring the accountant in to make sure what I'm doing works as, and that we're thinking about it the same way. I do want to ask one kind of big question. So in this case, oh, I'm going to make one more comment on the partnership tax. I think you, know, you guys talked about this as an alternate strategy. I think sometimes like I took partnership tax and decided to learn it because it was FARC. And that was kind of how I built my career was figuring out anything that was really hard to understand. But if you're not familiar with the partnership tax rules, it would could be a deterrent to making this recommendation. And so there's where collaborating with the accountant or someone who really understands them rather than not using a strategy that might work for the client. But one of the things I do want to ask is this, is in a lot of situations where I'm working with a client, the senior client wants to stay in control. For a period of time. And I assume with the freeze partnership, if seniors keeping the preferred interest, that's not a possibility in this scenario. Not necessarily. No, senior always keeps the preferred and it's a and the common is non-voting and the preferred is voting. Or the other way around. I mean, 
at the end of the day, if, if the senior is holding the preferred and is voting, I think you're running you're running a risk. I don't know if Jerry agrees with this of that 2036A2 might apply, you know, so that the the senior is in, in control along with whomever else is you know, maybe the, the trustee of the trust. You have to be careful about that. Ideally, would not give the senior control um, or even a voting right over the partnership. Not directly, maybe indirectly. There's various things you could do, but the, you know, there's another school of thought. I, I speak a little bit for Jerry that if you comply 100% with Section 2701 in every in every regard, and that's a safe harbor. And there's nothing in Section 2701 that says you cannot have some voting rights as the senior. Doesn't say that, so, and there's never been a case for a ruling on this. So that's the possibility. And so then my other question was this: Is this is obviously a great strategy for the leveraged real estate investor, and that's a really these are really common scenarios. Is there another type of scenario that this is a great fit for? You know, um, I think that that's where it's most valuable. But I have been brought in, we've been brought in to do these for people that have marketable securities. Um, and depending upon the, let's call it the risk profile, the income profile, likelihood of appreciation. I, I did this, I did a technique like this, for example, for one of my clients, it wasn't leveraged real estate, but it was real estate where it was, you know, worth, let's say $40 million. Um, and we put it into a freeze partnership. And then he he sold it about a year or two later to a big development development firm for like a hundred million dollars. It worked amazing, amazingly well for that that client, and they they've parlayed that either not into like four hundred million dollars. So it can be used with uh, other assets, but you have to look at likelihood of appreciation. Yeah. Um, Actually, if if I have a ten million dollar capital account in my partnership. And I want to sell it to a grant or trust for a ten million note. Uh, that means I got to have a ten million dollar note. And then there's people who believe in the ten percent minimum funding myth. So they say if you're going to have a ten million dollar note, the trust has to have a million dollars of seed money. So if you do the preferred partnership, remember the grant or sale or grant or trust is nothing more than a freeze, because you're replacing the one asset with a promissory note that doesn't appreciate in value. So if I take the 10 million, make it 90 million, 9 million preferred and 10 million common, then all I have to do is sell the $10 million common interest to the grant or trust. And if they want 10% minimum funding, all that the seed money for the grant or trust is a hundred thousand, not a million. So it's a way of reducing the costs of the freeze transaction by not having to have the uh, grant or trust with with more than more than a small amount of capital, we we leverage these. You know, the, again, it's leverage upon leverage. Um, most of these freeze partnerships turn out to be a combination of a freeze partnership and an installment sale. We structure it so that the the uh, the, the leverage the the, the Liabilities are not allocated to the common interest; they're allocated to the preferred interest, and then we sell the the common interest for an AFR loan. 
And that can help in a number of ways. You don't get a step up on that piece, but the AFR loan bears interest in the AFR, right? So if a significant portion of the equity is being sold in, in the form of the common interest, then you're getting the benefits of the insolvent sale, but you're still structured so that the preferred interest can still have all the liabilities allocated, even though it might have a small slice of equity. Now, there's a balancing these. You don't have to put any more equity in that preferred interest than is necessary. And sometimes when there's a lot of leverage involved and a low return, we'll structure it so that preferred interest doesn't have a lot of equity, but it gets all the debt allocated to it. And then you can sell the equity, you know, the remaining equity for an AFR loan. So you get the best of all possible. At, at the end of the day, this is a strategy that ought to be in the estate planner's toolbox that might be overlooked in terms of value for certain types of the, and particularly the leverage real estate or real estate investor, but also other options might be overlooked because of the complexity. But the answer to that is partner with the accountant and consider this strategy. And I really appreciate you guys spending the time sharing on this. And I did want to mention one other thing, because Steve, you mentioned Jerry's statement about a safe harbor is just a safe harbor. And I just wanted to share with you, Jerry, how many times I've repeated that to my associates since I attended your presentation where you made that statement, because a lot of people will look at a safe harbor and think that's the rule when it is truly just a safe harbor. And you don't have to totally follow that if you're really clear about what you're structuring. Would either of you have any last thoughts today? I, I just think that it's malpractice to take your leveraged real estate owner with a lot of uh, built-in gain appreciation and and not use this technique. That's I, I feel very strongly about that. It, so. As a matter of fact, there was a law firm that took a billion dollars of real estate that was encumbered and they did an installment sale of the real estate regular common partnership interest installment sale to a grantor trust and then the financial advisors said hey you're not going to get a step up in basis at death for all that negative capital account so they sued the law firm for malpractice yep. so the importance is be familiar with all the tours. It's one of my things in talking with associates that I say, like, don't get stuck on one tool, really be an objective-based planner, understand all the tools that are out there. You may not be an expert in everything, but one of the best things you can do is have a network that finds experts like the two of you, who hopefully you would be willing to take a call from a listener if they needed some help with a strategy. But thanks again for participating today. As we reach the end of our episode, I want to thank our sponsors. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly release. Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Trulson Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have.
a Huda Media Production.